that, but, you know, it's all right, you know, get a little exercise Sunday morning. Up, down, there you go. It's only a couple. The book of Romans, the book of Romans, we are in chapter 9, and we are going to read from verse 14. Romans 9, 14, when you got it, say so. All right. Says, so what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he has said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this purpose, very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he, has, on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles? And he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it, shall, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Seboeth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained a righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, putting the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Lord, thank you so very much for the truth of your word. Thank you so much for your greatness, for your love. For your mercy, God, today we humble ourselves before you and we pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church. God, I pray that you would captivate our minds, that you would remove distractions. And Lord God, any thought that would try to exalt itself against the knowledge of Christ, we cast it down right now in the name of Jesus. May we not just hear your word, but may we do your word. May we respond in obedience to it and in faith to you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. 
If you do not have an outline, just raise your hand. Uh, we want to be sure that you get an outline so you can follow along with me in the introduction of the sermon and also so that way you are actually um, able to take some notes. And um, as always, I do encourage you to share what you are learning with others. That's really important, right? That you are growing in your faith and that you are helping make disciples of others. And so um, as you learn on Sundays, the easiest way to do it, um, to share your faith and to share what you are learning is to just simply talk to them about what you are learning on Sunday mornings. And so that will be encouraging. Um, I know I joked last week that Romans 9 may not be the place for you to decide to, to start discipling someone. I would agree with that. But nonetheless, I do think that there is some really good stuff in Romans 9 that would help anyone to understand the faithfulness of God, which is what um, the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate. And so this morning we are continuing on in our Foundations of Faith series. And uh, we're going to talk about vessels today. That's what we're going to deal with. Um, as we look through Romans 9, we see something that stands out to us, and it is this term vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And so we do want to talk about vessels today, but before we jump head into that, I want us to recap some stuff. So if you look at your outline there, I kind of broke down some of the stuff that we looked at last week. Not all of it, but some of it. Um, and first of all, um, so far in chapter 9, we covered that the apostle is addressing God's faithful dealings with Israel. Right. And so this is really, really important, right, that we understand the context, because if we don't understand the context, it's going to mess up the whole interpretation and how we understand what is being communicated throughout the rest of what Paul is saying in Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11. And so what he is doing here is he is dealing with God's faithfulness in dealing with Israel. Very important for us to get that. How does he show us this? The first thing, and I want you to notice, right, verse 6. Just look back at verse 6 really quickly. In verse 6 in chapter 9, he says this. He says, but it, but it, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And so what is Paul doing there? Paul is addressing this question to the Israel, to the people of Israel, and to his Jewish hearers and saying, God's word has not failed in any way, shape, or form. God's word hasn't failed. There's something that is a disconnect that you're not understanding. And it is this, and, and these things here is what Paul spoke about. And so first of all, it is what? God's word has not failed with regard to Israel, but has been fulfilled to this point. And so everything that God has prophesied up to this point has come to pass with regard to Israel. And we see this, and we're going to see more of that today as he continues to unpack the history of of God's dealings with Israel. And, and it has been fulfilled. It is being fulfilled. Chapter 10, we'll talk about the present situation of Israel and then will be fulfilled in chapter 11. We're going to see God is going to fulfill his promises. We learned that being born of the seed of Abraham does not make one a carrier of the messianic seed, right? We learned last week that God, that God chose or elected Isaac over Ishmael and over Keturah's sons, right? That's what we learned last week, that the word elect there is the the word choice. That's all it means is that God made a choice. It's not talking about salvation. It is talking about God making a choice over one, one person over another. And so he chose Isaac over Ishmael and Keturah's sons to be the one who was going to carry the messianic seed. And so we realize what? That it was not about your birthright. It wasn't about you being born a, a child of Abraham and that automatically meant that you were going to be the carrier of that promise. That isn't true. We also realize the next thing is that 
works didn't secure the purpose of God, but God chose or elected Jacob over Esau to be the carrier of the messianic seed. So first of all, it's not about birthright. The second thing, it's not about your works. It's not about what you did. We learned that, right? That be, before either one of them had done anything good or evil, God chose Jacob over Esau saying that the younger, right, would, or that the older would serve the younger. And then we go on and we learn what? That God's love for Jacob and hate for Esau are comparative, not from birth. This is not something that God declared. This wasn't something that God said when Jacob and Esau were born. We learned last week, right, that there was a mix-up there. And I loved it because I was actually speaking to Minister Juan about the message, and he said something to me. He said, you know, man, when I first read that, he's like, I read that, and I was like, man, that's pretty messed up. And, and he said, I don't have any background in anything. I don't have any systematic of theology that I knew. And I said, of course, you would have thought that was messed up, and nothing would have triggered you to go and read the Old Testament. You know why? Because you don't know you need to do that. Nobody trained you in that, that what you need to do when you see something like, as it is written, you should go find out where it was written. Come on now. Right? That's why we're here to learn, right? We're here to grow and be like, hey, when it says as it is written, it would be good for you to go ahead and look back and say, hey, what was the writer saying there? Because the New Testament writer is quoting the Old Testament because, remember, at that time, the New Testament had not been written. When Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, you know what, you know what happened is he's writing to them. There is no New Testament Bible. There is no Gospels. There is no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is none of that. The only thing that they have is the Old Testament, which is the and then they have the prophets. That's all they have, the historical books. That's their Bible at that time. So what does Paul do? He communicates to them, and he lets them know some prophecies or some things that were communicated there. So we see that it's not from birth. Malachi was written as an encouragement to Israel of God's electing love for them. And so now this next point here, we did not go over last week, and it's because I was not aware of it. I hadn't studied this part out. But I want you to write, but you, it's already written down for you. But I want you to check this out because I think that this is such a cool connection to the whole um, situation of God saying that he hates Esau. The book of Obadiah is a book. It is, one it is the smallest chapter or it's the smallest book in the Old Testament. One chapter. And in in this book of Obadiah, verse 10 tells us why it is that Jacob, or why it is that Esau was hated. So if you look here, Obadiah 10 shows us why Esau, the nation Edom, because the book of Obadiah is a prophetic word that, that is written to and against the nation of, of, of Edom, is written against Esau. And the reason for this is because of his violence against Jacob. What you will notice if you study out Israel's history is that all throughout their history, the Edomites, which are the children of Esau, they have been opposing who? They've been opposing Israel. They've been opposing Jacob. Why does this matter? Here's something that I didn't mention to you last week. When God spoke to Abraham, what did he tell Abraham? He told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. Did he not say that? Right? He said that. We all know that. I will bless those who bless you. But what was the second part that he said? I will curse those who curse you. I will cur See, we never talk about the curse part. We talk about the blessing, like, and we know we should pray for Israel, right? I mean, I hope you know that. You should pray God's blessing. You should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You should pray those things in order to receive that. You shouldn't be in opposition to Israel, right? God's, God's elect people. We shouldn't be against them. However, we don't talk about the curses that come into place. And what happened was Edom had been in opposition to Israel, and they were against Israel. So when you go and you read the book of Obadiah, you're going to see that Israel was, was going in, in the direction of God's blessing, and 
Edom was opposing that blessing, and therefore what happened? God said, those who curse you, I will curse. Guess what, Edom? Guess what, Esau? You have been in opposition to the messianic seed. You have been in opposition to God fulfilling his promise. Guess what happens to you? You become cursed. And you know what curse happens? That's when you come under the condemnation of God, and you end up being hated by God. It's not something, again, the Old Testament proves if we just study it, it shows us God never meant those things to be applied to Jacob and Esau at birth. The only thing that was applied to Jacob and Esau at birth was that the older would serve the younger. That was the only thing that was applied there. And so we have this understanding in the Old Testament, and then in Hebrews chapter 12, which we did go over last week, is that we learned that what? That Esau earned his judgment from God as well, and you can look at that in, 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 um, in the notes that I sent you as well. To this point, what did we learn? Individual salvation is not the topic under discussion, but how God has fulfilled his word in bringing salvation to the world to Gentiles through Israel. I'll say that one more time. To this point... In this chapter, we, it is not talking about individual salvation. That is not the topic that is under discussion. But it is how God has fulfilled his word in bringing salvation to the world, to Gentiles through Israel. It is a picture of God's faithfulness to fulfill his word and his promise to bring forth the Messiah. And like I told you last week and I warn you this week, we got a lot of scriptures that we're going to go over. I didn't do a whole PowerPoint thing for you. I'm going to send you the notes again. But I do encourage you to take some notes to write some stuff down because it will be helpful. But what I want you to know is that I'm definitely going to be doing more teaching than preaching because I need you to see what it is, again, that the people who heard this would have been familiar with what they would have understood that you and I don't necessarily grasp because we're not, unless you are a student. Now, if you are a student of the Old Testament, then guess what? All of these things are going to click and they'll be like, yep, all of that's true. But if you're not a student of the Old Testament and you only know the New Testament, you know what ends up happening is you end up misapplying stuff. I told you that I went through a class on Daniel. And as I went through the class on Daniel, the one thing that they talked about was they talked about the common language that was there in the book of Daniel. And so in the time that Daniel was speaking, he's speaking about stuff and even in the prophetic words that he's communicating, the people that were the original readers of Daniel, they would have had an understanding of what Daniel was talking about much better than you and I would. And now I'm going through a class in the book of Revelation, which is a lot of fun too. And you know what? The same principles apply. The people who originally read the book of Revelation, they had an understanding about stuff that, that we don't understand clearly. And so the pictures that are being painted there, the original hearers were like, oh, I know what that is. Oh, I know what that is. That's exactly what that means. It's kind of like somebody, and I like this example that my, the professor gave. He said, uh, he said, think about our present atmosphere right now, our political climate. Um, think about sports and stuff like that. He's like, you know, go on ahead and, and fast forward, you know, 100 years from now. And he says, 100 years from now, let's say things have changed completely. We no longer have the Miami Dolphins and the Chicago Bears, right? We no longer have those two teams. And he said, and so now, 100 years later, people don't know anything about the Chicago Bears or the Miami Dolphins. They don't know anything about how our political structures were. And all of a sudden, they're reading a paper about the Miami Dolphins and the Chicago Bears that they were in this battle. What are they going to be thinking? Like bears and, and dolphins? Like were they fighting like in their mind? Like they don't have a reference point to that kind of stuff, right? It's the same thing for us, right? It's the same thing for us when we're reading scripture. If we don't have a reference point to it, you know what we're forced to do? We're forced to make up stuff. We're forced to kind of try to figure it out on our own. And that is what I believe happens a lot of times when we're going into scriptures, especially that are dealing with the Old Testament, the way that the Apostle Paul is here. It is easy for us to just go on ahead and add whatever we think this means or how it seems to be or what it seems to mean to us instead of looking at what did the original writers want to say. 
And so that's what we want to do. We want to stay in the context and want to look at what Paul was communicating. So here's what I want you to think about this morning. God is just in his judgments against man and can be trusted to fulfill his purpose through or in spite of man. I, th I think that that is the big idea throughout this whole portion that Paul is going to talk about right now, is that God is just in his judgments against man and can be trusted to fulfill his purpose through or in spite of man. And so there are some vessels of honor through whom Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, right? Those are vessels of honor through whom God brought, right? like Mary, right? Vessels of honor through whom God brought his messianic purpose through. And then there are others that oppose God's purposes, like Pharaoh, who we're going to talk about, like the Pharisees in the days of Jesus who were opposed to Jesus. And if they would have not, now listen to me, if they would not have been opposed to Jesus, guess where Jesus would have never been? He would have never been on the cross. He would have never made it to the cross if the Jews of Jesus' day would have accepted him and made him Messiah. You know why? Because there would have been no, there would, how would he have, he would have had to commit suicide in order to fulfill anything. But God, God brings judgments against men in a just way. And it is that he is going to fulfill his purpose with us or in spite of us. That's just the reality. God is going to do that. Today, he did it then, and right now what he's talking about is how he's going to fulfill his purposes and how he's fulfilled them through Israel, and God goes and he breaks down this history. So the first thing I want to ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, God's character revealed through Israel's history denies any idea of injustice from God. I know that was a long one, but listen. Think about this. God's character revealed through Israel's history denies any idea of injustice from God. And so what we have here is we have God revealing. He's continuing. And we ended with this verse last week. We're starting with it this week. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God or is there injustice with God? Certainly not. We know that the way that he dealt with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob shows us there is no injustice with God. God was not unjust in any way, shape, or form. And the way that he dealt with Jacob, Esau, all those stories, we saw that God was just in how he dealt with them. All of the prophecies show us God is just in how he deals with man, right? It makes it clear to us. And so we see Paul says, hey, is there any, any unrighteousness with God? Absolutely not. And he says for this, now look what he says in verse 15. He says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion so then now look at this it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs but of God who shows mercy now I want us to pause for a moment because we have to think about who is the it in this in, in this in this whole thing because if we get off track here, then what we're going to say is that it is talking about salvation. It is not talking about salvation. It cannot be talking about salvation because it is pointing backwards to something Paul has already communicated. So it, what is he talking about? It is the election. That's what he's talking about. So this election or this choice, so it is not, the election, the choice is not based upon us willing it's not based upon us running. We learned that earlier, did we not? We learned that it's not about works. It's not about your birthright. It's not about what you do. You cannot earn God's election. Are you here? 
You cannot make God choose you, right? We don't, we don't make God choose us because we're good enough. And God says, you know what? You're good enough to be on my team, so I'm going to pick you. We know that God picks the least of all, right? He picks the least of all throughout all of this. Again, why the older would serve the younger, the least of the two, right? The one, I, I said it, I think I said it in first service. I don't know if I said it in second service. But I said if I had to choose between Esau and Jacob to be the one that was going to carry on the lineage, I would have chosen Esau. I'm just saying. Why? Because Esau was a hunter. He was a fighter, right? I'm not saying like Jacob, you know, wasn't going to fight. I mean, he obviously was willing to fight. But what I'm saying is, like, if I had to choose a dude by the description I had in the scripture, right, I would have chosen Esau. God said, nope, I'm not going to choose him. I'm going to choose the one that's lesser, the one that may be weaker. Of all things, I'm going to choose the one that's the younger son. And so the first thing we have to grasp is that when we're looking at the it in the conversation is that it is not of him, election or being chosen for this purpose, this noble purpose, this purpose that God has for Israel is not of him who wills. We know that Abraham didn't do anything. It wasn't Abraham who was willing. It was God who chose him, right? That's what we found out in Scripture. It wasn't him who wills. But I want you to notice real quickly, there is, a, there, there is a phrase that is missing from here. And this is why I know, I know that Paul is not talking about salvation because he's not saying, he doesn't say the word, it's not of him who has faith. He doesn't say that in there. He doesn't say, see, see, some of us want to inject faith into this conversation thinking that will has to do with faith or something like that. That's not a reality. The reality is what? The reality is it says it's not of him who wills. It's not me who wills. It's not me who wills to do something that I get chosen. It is of what? It is of him who shows mercy. And so what is he exactly talking about in this mercy? Who is he quoting here? What is he quoting? He's quoting the Old Testament, is he not? We know that he is doing that. He's quoting the Old Testament because he is quoting, he is quoting who? He is quoting a conversation that he had with his servant Moses. And this is on the tail end. If you go back, you don't have to go there. You can just write this down because we're going to go through a lot of scripture. Um, when he's talking to Moses in Exodus 33, that's what he's quoting right now. And Moses the, had been up in the mountain with God. God was giving him revelation for the tabernacle. He was giving revelation and for all of these things. He was giving him the Ten Commandments. And then the children of Israel, Moses was taking too long for them. And you know what they decided? You know what we're going to do? We're going to make our own gods. That's what they decided. And so when they decide they're going to make their own gods, what happens? Moses comes down from the mountain. God is ready to just wipe these people out. And he literally tells Moses, this is what he tells Moses. Think about this. He says, listen, I'm paraphrasing this. He's like, I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start over with you. Sounds like a deal. No, Moses is like, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. What does Moses appeal to? He says, Abraham, remember the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Why? Remember the promise. Remember your purpose, God. And, and so he, ble he pleads with God, and, they, and God still brings judgment on the people for their rebellion. Like 3,000 people die, and then God reveals himself to Moses, or not die, they got killed because of their rebellion. And then Moses, he reveals himself to Moses, and Moses says, God, God tells Moses, I'm trying to give you the history of what's happening here and where this quote comes from. He tells Moses, Moses, you know what? Go ahead and go up out of this place. Go to the land that I promised you, but I'm not going with you. Why? Because if I go with you, I'm going to have to kill y'all. Are you here? That's what he's telling them. If I go with you into this land, because you are a stiff-necked, hardened, hello, because you are a rebellious people, because of the way that you are, if I go with you, I am going to have to do what? I'm going to have to kill you. And so you know what? I'm going to send my angel before you. He's going to go ahead and he's going to take care of things. And so what we know is that Moses does what? He says, God, if you're not going to go, I'm not going. 
He's like, if you don't go with us, we are not going to go. And so what does God tell? And he, then he tells God, he's like, God, show me your glory. That's where this whole thing comes from. And then God tells him, listen, I will, have, I will be gracious to whom I'm going to be gracious in the actual Exodus account. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will show mercy. And so what, what do we see here? Well, I want you to see this. Israel earned the wrath of God. And what did God do? For the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God showed them mercy. Mercy to do what? To fulfill the messianic promise. I hope you're following along because this is what Paul is trying to remind them of. God's faithfulness in this conversation. The great question is, who is God showing mercy to here and why? He is showing mercy to rebellious Israel on account of Moses' intercession. And we know that Moses is a type of Christ. Because later on, the Bible says, uh, God prophesies that, a, that he will raise up a prophet like Moses. And that prophet was Jesus, the one that was to come. And so we know that God is showing them mercy. And why is he doing that? Again, it's for the messianic purpose. So God's choice one was he was going to do what? He was going to go ahead and he was going to wipe them out and start off with Moses. And guess what he was going to do? Because Moses was an Israelite, he was going to fulfill his promise through Moses. Moses prays, no, God, don't do it that way. Remember him. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has mercy on them. And then he goes on ahead and we move on to the next portion of the scripture. This is the one that many of us are familiar with. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, now listen to this. For this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that, and, that my, and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. And so what, is, what does God say that the purpose of Pharaoh is? He raised Pharaoh up. In other words, he put Pharaoh into a position of authority for a purpose. And it was for this specific purpose. And, and again, now remember, you and I are like, okay, so what's the purpose? And so is the purpose just for this here? Therefore, he says this in verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, right? And we know that God is merciful, right? We know that God is long-suffering. We know that God extends mercy to everyone. As a matter of fact, later on, I think it's in chapter 11, we're going to see that God has subjected all of us into disobedience so he can offer mercy to all. So we'll see that later on. But here's what I want you to, to grasp here. He says that he shows mercy to whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. And so he goes on to say something because now what Paul is doing, remember that diatribe thing that Paul does where he'll ask a question and answer the question? And so Paul does that again here. He says, you will say to me then. So who is he? Who is he? Who is saying this? I want you to think about who is saying this because, again, this goes with the context. The person who he's arguing with is his Jewish hearer who has been hardened, who is rejecting Jesus as the only way. He's saying, so you will say to me this. This is what he says you will say to me. Why does he still find fault? And if you go back and you remember chapter 3 in the book of Romans where they were finding fault there with God as well, where they said, hey, can't we just continue in our sin? If our sin shows the glory of God, right, then why, why, why is God finding fault with us here? And now, why is God finding fault here? He's the one who is hardening us. He says, for who has resisted his will? Verse 20. This is a very important verse. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Verse 21. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honor for honor and another for dishonor. Now, listen, before I go any further, I just want to touch on verse 20. I want you to see what verse 20 says. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? I want you to understand above anything else, God owes us no explanation. 
I want you to hear that. I want you to understand that God is above us. He is not beneath us. We don't, God doesn't owe us mercy. God doesn't owe us an answer. God doesn't owe us a response. God is holy. And that is what Paul is pointing out in one sense, is that you need to understand that God is greater than you. And you have no right to even question God. Now, I want you to think about that. Because while you and I have no right to question God, God allows us to question him. Even though we have no right to ask God anything, God allows us to ask him. Even though we have no right to doubt him, he allows us to doubt him. And he doesn't strike us dead when we do that. God allows us to, 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 to argue with him as we see throughout the Psalms. God allows us to be frustrated with him. And he doesn't destroy us because he is merciful. He doesn't owe us an explanation. But let me say this about God. Although he doesn't owe us an explanation, he gives us plenty of references of who he is. He shows us who he is, and he makes it crystal clear for us. And I want you to understand this. He makes it crystal clear who he is, and he shows us, listen, and, and, and when I listen to Paul's writing, God, Paul is not trying to do just a smackdown, right, and just be like, listen, who are you to ask God questions? But he's also being, wait a second, what God are you talking about? Are you talking about some ruthless God that just arbitrarily just hardens you and softens you and hardens you and softens? Is that what you're talking about? You're not talking about a God like that. That's not the God that has revealed himself in the scriptures. God has revealed himself as a just God. And so, again, he's higher than us. He doesn't owe us any explanation. But who has or how has God revealed himself? That's the question. And this is what Paul has been doing throughout this whole time. He's been showing us who God is. And so those he wills, he, saw, or he, he, wills, he shows mercy. And those he wills, he hardens. That's what he says here dealing with Pharaoh. But he says specifically about Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. So I raised you up so I could show my power in you. How did God show his power in Pharaoh? Was it not through the plagues that came and manifested in Egypt? Was it not through the parting of the Red Sea and the crushing and all that? stuff? Isn't that how God's power was seen in, in him? I mean, you think about that. That's what God did through him. Did he not? I mean, that's what he did. But you know what? We know what his Israelite hearers and his Jewish hearers would be thinking. Pharaoh deserved all that. Pharaoh was wicked. He deserved all that stuff. And, and the reason why he's painting this picture is because he's saying, so are you. Those of you that are rebelling against Jesus, those of you that are rejecting Jesus, so are you. You're worthy of that. It's something called, and you can write this down if you're taking notes, it's called judicial hardening. He hardened him in a judicial way. It's not some arbitrary hardening. It is judicial hardening. And so here's what I want you to see. Because as I did, as I sat there and as I was going down, you know, I preached to myself, just in case you didn't know. I sit down and I'm like, and I go through the message and as I'm, you know, I'm just a guy. Like I sit there and I start reading it like I'm going to talk to you. And then I start preaching. And then as I'm preaching, I start saying stuff and then things start coming out of my mouth. And I'm just going to credit God with that because I don't think I'm that smart. And I'm like, and you know what? God showed himself to the, to the, to the Egyptians way back in the time of Joseph, and I was like, time out, let me go back there. And so let me give you some reference points, because I want you to, sh I want to show you something, because we're going to see something in the next portion of the verses that we'll get to, where it talks about God being long-suffering with the vessels of wrath, right, that are prepared for wrath. We're going to see that. But I want you to understand how long-suffering God was with the Egyptians before he actually rose up and laid the smack down on them. I want you to think about this. Way back, you write this down, in the book of Genesis chapter 41, there was a guy by the name of Joseph, 
Pharaoh at that time had a dream, and when he had a dream, he needed interpretation. The cupbearer remembered that Joseph was a guy that was in, that was in prison with him, and, and Joseph gave him this interpretation of the dream. And because of time's sake, we can't go back there and look, but I want you to go back there, and you can look at it yourself. Joseph did this. Joseph introduced the king of Egypt to the one true God. You know what he did? He tells him, hey, when the king asked him about the dream, he said, the interpretation is not in me, but it's in God in heaven. And throughout the whole time that Joseph is talking, you know what he's saying to him? He's saying, listen, God is showing you this. God is letting you know this. And God gave you two dreams because God is making it clear that God is going to do this. And then after that, you know what the Pharaoh says? The Pharaoh says, surely the spirit of God is in him. Come on, somebody. So what does God do? God walks into Egypt 400 years prior to what we're looking at, and he does what? He shows himself to the Egyptians, and he lets them know, I am the one true God. I'm the one that is going to cause this famine, and I'm the one that's going to allow you to be in power, and you're going to be the ones that are going to preserve what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for 400 years, they're going to be in the land of Egypt. And so then what happens is God shows himself. But what did the Egyptians do? Did they get rid of their gods? Absolutely not. What they do? They continued worshiping their idols. They continued building their empire. They continued to reject the God of heaven. And so you know what happens? You fast forward some 400 years, and, and, and you get to Exodus chapter 1, and what do we see there? We see there the first part of this rebellion against God's people under this new Pharaoh. Like I said, it's like 400 years later. So for 400 years, these people knew about this God. There's this reference to God, and then there's a Pharaoh that comes up that doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know about Joseph. He, does, he has to have the historical understanding of who God is, though. And because of his fear of the people rising up against him, what does he do? He commands the slaughter. That's in Exodus chapter 1. He commands the slaughter of who? Of all of the firstborn children in Israel. And you know what we get to see throughout this whole time in the book of Exodus, in the Exodus account, is we see something called the fear of the Lord that is mentioned throughout this whole time, which tells us what? Is that the knowledge of God was there. The knowledge of God was present, and there were some people who were fearing God, and there were some who weren't. And you know who the ones that weren't? It was the kings of Israel, that, uh, the kings of Egypt that were not. The pharaohs were not fearing the Lord. And so what happens is we see that God goes on ahead, and then he goes, um, you fast forward there, you get there. And so the pharaoh, this pharaoh in chapter 1 is not the pharaoh that Moses is talking about, though. It's probably his dad. It could be his grandfather. I, I'm, I'm not sure which one it was. But nonetheless, in chapter 3, Moses is in the wilderness and God does what? God calls Moses. So I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to communicate with them. And this verse, it, it messes me up because I want you to think about this. In, in Exodus chapter 3 verse 19, what does he say there? He says to Moses before he says that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Before he says that, when he's sending Moses back, you know what he tells Moses? He says, but I am sure, this is God speaking, but I am sure that he will not let you go, even if by a strong hand. This is what God says about this Pharaoh that Moses is about to, is about to encounter. So what does that tell us? That tells us that when God comes to this Pharaoh, this Pharaoh, no matter what God did, he wasn't going to hurt. So you know what God said? I'm going to go ahead and judicially harden you, and I'm going to bring my glory out of your life. God's not unjust, is he? Think about that now. He's not unjust. He's not just there, hardened, softened, hardened, softened. That's not God. That's not what he's doing. He's looking at this guy's heart. He is looking at him, and he's saying, listen, you know what? No matter what happens, this Pharaoh, this is what God says. These are not my words. This is God speaking to his servant Moses. He says, but I am sure. This is God saying this to him. Then later on in chapter 4 is when he tells him, I'm going to harden his heart. 
And he does that. But you know what? If you, and I, I'm, I'm going to encourage you later on. Go down and read chapter 9 of the book of Exodus. And sit down there and read this. As you read chapter 9 of the book of Exodus, it is such a sad picture of how Pharaoh had this opportunity to repent. And he decides he's going to go ahead and he's going to harden his heart. And then you know what God does? God hardens his heart and says, you know what? You're going to rebel against me. Pharaoh recognizes that he sinned against God. He recognizes God is righteous. He says, I'm going to let these people go. And then he turns away from that. And he repents as soon as God shows him mercy. Are you here? This is what God does. And so in dealing with Pharaoh, he has this whole situation, and God surely does harden him in a judicial sense. But for this reason, I raised you up. I want you to think about this, because God raised him up for this purpose. Later on, you fast forward, and you see this woman by the name of Rahab, the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. This is another one that blew my mind, because Joshua, chapter 2, verse 9 and 11, you know what happens is these two spies that are in the, the, the place of Jericho, and they're having a conversation with this, this prostitute woman, and this woman is there. And she's like, hey, we've heard about you. When did they hear about you? When you were in Egypt. Hello. We heard about your God in Egypt. And, and so you know what happens? Because of the judgment against Pharaoh, guess what? Rahab gets saved. How do I know this? Because she was like the great-great-grandmother of David. Hello, somebody. So not only does she get saved, not only does she get aware of what God did, she was actually engrafted. Oh, y'all. She was engrafted into the lineage of Jesus. This Gentile woman, come on now, this is what the scriptures are talking about. This is why the context matters. Because what God is saying is that I have been faithful in my dealing with people. I've not been arbitrary. I've dealt with them according to their wickedness, according to who they are. This is not, listen, this chapter has not been dealing with election. So in, 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 in the salvific sense, he's talking about bringing to pass my purpose in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so pausing here, just as Esau or Edom opposed the messianic plan and was cursed so pharaoh did he opposed the messianic plan he tried to stop it he tried to get rid of the seed the firstborn male all of the males that were born he tried to get rid of those couldn't do that that's what his grandfather or his father did and then he tries to oppose them again and guess what god says no i've been long suffering in the way that i've dealt with you and so god does what he uses vessels that are fitted for wrath justly and fulfilling his messianic purpose now I don't have a lot of time to go through this. I have like 12 seconds right now based on that clock there. So you just know that I'm not going to be able to get through this. I got, I'll have, I'm going to take 10 minutes though, okay? But here's the thing. Jeremiah chapter 18. Now, we don't have time to go there and read it. But Paul ends that portion and he says what? Does not the potter, right, have, have power over the clay to take from one lump and make vessels of honor and make vessels of dishonor? That's what he says there. Now, I want you to know, again, in the mind of the hearer, they are automatically going to go back to the Old Testament reference in the book of Jeremiah. In their mind, they're going to do that because that's their reference to what Paul is saying. Now, here's what I want you to understand about Jeremiah 18. When you go back there and you read it, you're going to find something out about God. Is God tells Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house. And when he says go down to the potter's house, he, Jeremiah sees the potter at the wheel, and he's over there making a pot. The pot is getting messed up in the potter's hand. And you know what God says? God says, tell Israel that, that this is us. This is a picture of, uh, of me and Israel. And then he tells them, if I tell a nation that I'm going to do good, and again, I'm paraphrasing this, if I tell a nation I'm going to do good for them, and they decide to turn away from their ways, guess what? I will turn away from doing good toward them. But if I tell a nation that I'm going to do bad toward them, that I'm going to bring destruction against them, and they turn from their ways, you know what he says? I will relent of my destruction toward them. So what is he telling us about the potter? 
He's saying that, man, the potter, the potter is for sure in control of the clay, but the potter gives the clay a choice. Hello, somebody. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, well, you know what, I'm just going to, you're, you're just, this. no, no, no. He gives you a choice in the matter. That's what the potter uh, narrative gives us to understand about God. He gives you a choice in the matter. And speaking specifically to Israel, again, he's speaking to them about the way that God is dealing with them, the way that God is dealing with them specifically. The second thing I want to ask you to repeat after me is this, say, God's wrath and mercy are purposeful. God's wrath and mercy are purposeful. And so what does he go on to say? He says, what is, and, I, and I, before I even read this, I just want to tell you that in all of this study, this was the hardest portion of the scripture for me to just get my head around. And I want to tell you why. Because automatically in my head, I wanted to jump to individual salvation. I wanted to jump to this is what this meant. And what I need you to understand is that that's our natural tendency because maybe that's what we have heard or what we've been taught or what we understand. But I want you to know that it is impossible for you to maintain the context if you just switch what Paul is talking about to individual salvation. Now, that's not what God is talking about here. But nonetheless, I struggled with it. I, listen, you can ask Lewis. He gets my notes usually like Thursday. He didn't get these until like Saturday at like midnight or something like that. No, not Saturday, Friday at midnight, like Friday at midnight. So uh, I usually don't go Saturday. I was here until late Saturday. But thinking through it, and even as I was meditating on it, I'm like, man, I'm still trying to just grasp what God is saying here. Because there's two options. Either he is talking about vessels of mercy, right, being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, or he's talking about something else. Either he's talking about that or he's talking about individuals. God has not introduced individuals in the salvific sense here. He is still dealing with the messianic promise that is coming through the children of Israel and how God has been faithful to bring this about. And so he's not just going to flip the script and say, well, now I'm talking about something else. That would not even work. It doesn't make sense. And so anyway, so Paul goes on and he says this, what if God wanting or what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And just from a linguistic standpoint, I want you to know that word prepared right there, it doesn't connect to anyone in particular who prepared it. It just says that they were prepared for destruction. They were fitted for destruction. I want you to know something. We fit ourselves for destruction by our disobedience to God. God doesn't have to fit us for anything. If you read, I mean, again, and, I just, and, and I'm, I'm trying to keep it in its context, but I need you to understand, linguistically, it doesn't even work. If I try to say, well, God, nope, it doesn't say God did that. It says that they were prepared for destruction. It doesn't even say prepared beforehand, which makes it another problem. Because you're going to notice that the next portion here, it says that God prepared them beforehand, the vessels for glory. It doesn't say that about the vessels for wrath. And so if I'm even going to try to apply that to individual salvation, which it does not apply there, it doesn't even work me saying that God is the one who does that because that is not what the context says. So what if God willing or wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And again, who were these vessels of wrath? Was it not Pharaoh? Was that not who we just talked about? We talked about the 400 years. Do you think that's long suffering? There's a long time of God being merciful to this vessel of wrath. I think so. All of these years, think about the way that God dealt with Edom. I want you to think about this. It wasn't until way later on that God brings this curse upon Edom. You know how long Edom had been in opposition to Israel? And yet when God brings Israel into the, as he's walking them through the land of, uh, into, into the promised land, you know what God is telling them? To not, to, to not be against the Edomites, their brothers, but to be merciful toward them. God has been merciful toward these vessels of, of, of wrath. And he said, and that he might, sh might make known the riches 
riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Who were these vessels of mercy? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the children of Israel who deserved God's wrath in the wilderness. Those are the vessels of mercy there that God is speaking about, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. What, do you think there's glory in being part of the Messianic lineage? you think so? I think there's glory in that, that I was part of bringing forth Messiah, that I was part of that chosen nation, that I was part, that that's the glory that is there, that I'm part of that, that I can do that. Even us whom he called, and he's talking about the Jews that are there, but not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles, you know, Ruth, you know, Rahab, you know, those were Gentiles that were part of the messianic lineage. These are people that were there. And Paul is going to introduce to us how the salvation has come to the world. So again, in Exodus 32 through 33, Paul Earn, or, or Israel had earned God's wrath, and as a result of Moses interceding, God showed them mercy. What for? To fulfill the messianic promise. Pharaoh was hardened in his rebellion to show God's glory and bring about God's redemptive purpose, the promise to Abraham. Please hear that. That is what is happening here. That is the picture that Paul is painting for his Israelite hearers. He's letting them know, hey, this is what God did. God had mercy on these vessels over here that earned his wrath. And let me just say one more thing for my friends that may want to apply this to an individual salvation. In a salvific sense, if this is dealing with individual salvation, let me just say this. Um, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us that we are all vessels of wrath. What do I mean by that? The Bible says we're all children of wrath. Therefore, we are all children of wrath. And then Romans chapter 5, 18, it tells us what? It tells us, therefore, as through one man's offense came, to all, came judgment to all men resulting in com condemnation so even through one man's righteousness the act the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life and so all of us if we want to apply this and again I think that's the worst application we can make because I think it takes the scripture out of context but if we're going to apply it to individual salvation we are all vessels of wrath whom God showed mercy to are you here that is what we are and so all of us were under that wrath, and because of Jesus, we are able to walk into God's mercy. So who are the vessels of wrath? I'll read it again as I just said it. Vessels of wrath are those who are hardened like Pharaoh in the Old Testament, and Israel who has stumbled and, and allowed Jesus to go to the cross, which does what? Which allows us to have the opportunity for salvation. Vessels of mercy are those specifically chosen to carry the messianic seed, which is Jews and Gentiles alike like and the Jewish apostles also are the ones like Paul and other Jewish messengers whom God chose to carry the message of salvation to the world. Now, I know that was a lot but here's what I want you to grasp. The vessels of wrath, those are who? Those are the people that have been in rebellion against God. Those who have opposed the, the messianic promises of God. Those who have been in opposition, that's what the scripture shows us. That's what Paul has been communicating. The vessels of mercy, because remember, there are some Jewish hearers that are there that are like, man, you know what? Why, why not all of us? Why haven't all of us bowed our knees? Why haven't all of us turned? Why haven't all of us repented? And Paul is like, listen, there are some vessels like me who was on my way to Damascus, who was ready to go and persecute everyone. And guess what God did? God blinded me. God did something miraculous to save me, but not just for my individual salvation, but because I was going to be an apostle under the Gentiles. See, there's a purpose that God has. And Israel, as we're going to see, are, are the ones that have stumbled, and they're the ones who have, um, who, who have been the ones who have, who have been hindered from seeing the fullness of God's um, purpose for their life up until this point. 
But like I said, we're going to see later on as we come through chapter 10 and chapter 11 how God is still dealing with Israel. And so what does Paul go on to say? He says in verse 25, and this is, this is a funny verse here, because when he quotes in the Old Testament, he's not quoting a verse that is talking about the ingrafting of Gentiles. You know what he's quoting a verse about? He's quoting a verse about his mercy toward Israel. That's what he's quoting here. So again, when you go back and you read it, you're like, wait a second, he's not talking about Gentiles here. He's talking about his mercy towards Israel. He's talking about his mercy toward his people. He's talking about how he's been merciful. And so what does he say to them in Hosea? He says, I will call them my people who were not my people because they were in judgment. And, he, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Again, this is Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. So again, not all Israel is going to be saved. That's just a reality. Not because God doesn't offer them salvation. We're going to see God extends his arm to rebellious people all of the time, calling them to repent. They refuse to repent. Therefore, only a remnant is going to be saved. But there will be a remnant that is going to be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make, make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, for unless the Lord of Seboeth had left us a seed, that seed again is speaking of Jesus, we would have been like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. And so again, God does that third thing. I'll ask you to repeat after me and I'm wrapping up. Um, say this with me. God extends his mercy beyond the messianic nation, Israel. God extends his mercy beyond the messianic nation Israel. And so we wrap this up in, this, in verse 30. Look what he says. So what does Paul do? Again, you can always tell when he's concluding his thought because of the questions that he asks. What shall we say then? Everything that I just said, what shall we say then? What's the point of everything that I just said? Now we deal with how God is saving people. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained a righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. That word is so important, is it not? He hasn't used faith throughout this whole time that he's been talking, and now he brings that word faith again back into the conversation. Why? Because we are righteous because of the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness? And then he asks why, and this is the reason why. Because they, speaking of Israel, did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So in summary of what the apostle deals with here, what is he saying? He's saying through the hardening of some and through the mercying of others, God's plan of salvation has come to all men. And what is he doing? He's driving home the point. That being born Jewish doesn't guarantee salvation, nor does being born a Gentile exclude you from salvation. But faith in Jesus is all that matters. It is about faith in Christ that matters. The Jews, they want their own righteousness based upon their laws and keeping the law. Paul is like, nope, that's not how it goes. And so here's what I say. We ought to stand in awe of God that even through men's rebellion, through men's unfaithfulness and through the stumbling of the Jews over Jesus and who he was, God was bringing his word of promise to pass and in that, bringing salvation to the world. We should stand in awe of that because that's what Paul just told us in this portion of scripture here. 
what he just communicated to them by saying, hey, this is the, this is the, the history of Israel and God dealing with them. And this is how Jesus came to be because God was faithful. God brought to pass all of these promises. He didn't fail in any of them. And even when men opposed it, in spite of them, God fulfilled his purpose. And, and, and what he did was he chose others simply because of his mercy. But when someone tried to oppose, even though he extended mercy to them, even though he was gracious toward them, he was long-suffering in, in, in their lives, he chose certain vessels for a different glory than he chose others. That's just the bottom line. He made a choice. And so that's what God does. But we should stand in awe because he's done that. And so here is my closing question for you. What type of vessel are you? We talked about vessels. So that's my question. My question is this. What type of vessel are you? In 2 Timothy, because we talk about vessels of honor, the Bible speaks also, not just in um, Jeremiah chapter 18, about vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. It doesn't just speak about it there in the Potter narrative. But Paul also speaks of these vessels in um, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20. Look at what it says. It says, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for for dishonor. Look what he says in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So here's the question. Are you a vessel of honor or are you a vessel of dishonor? And here's what I say to you. The choice is yours. It's not God. God's not going to choose for you. If you choose rebellion against him, guess what? You've made your choice. You will be a vessel of dishonor. But if you will choose repentance and faith in him, you will be a vessel of honor. You know what God wants? God is a God who is merciful. He is gracious. His wrath is going to come. His judgments are right. But here's what I know is that God wants to show mercy. If he didn't want to show mercy, he wouldn't have sent his son. And so again, what kind of vessel are you? Let's all stand on our feet. Let's bow our heads. Now, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed there, I know that that was a lot, a lot, a lot to process. And like I said, I will send my notes for you to sit down with them and you can unpack them and you can look over them and hopefully they will be helpful to you. But for this moment, the one question that is so important is what kind of vessel are you? Are you a vessel of honor? Don't leave this place being a vessel of dishonor. Don't leave this place in rebellion towards God. Don't leave this place in disobedience to him, not trusting what his word has declared for you. Put your faith in Christ today. Trust him today. Turn from your sin today so he can make you into a vessel of honor for his glory. Father, I come to you right now, and I pray over my brothers and my sisters in here that have already made commitments to you as vessels of honor that want to bring you glory, that want to bring you praise. And, Lord, I ask you, fill them with your grace to continue to carry that glory, that wonder of who you are. And Lord, I pray for those that are in here that are not yet vessels of honor, those who are in rebellion against you, those who are walking in disobedience to your word, those who are living for themselves and not for your glory. God, have mercy upon them, Lord God. May they turn to you today, and may you remake them, as your word tells us, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. God, make them new today. 
We thank you for this, and we pray all these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, come on, give God a hand of praise.